Welcome, TDP Tribe. You are listening to The DAP Project. I am your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Aaron Stallworth. The DAP Project explores culture and politics through DAP, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. Our theme for season four is resilience, how we hope, experience obstacles, and recover quickly to continue pursuing our ambitions. Our guest today is Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, the senior pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. He is a community organizer, beginner farmer, and social entrepreneur. Reverend Brown defines resilience as the ability to adapt with integrity. He learned these skills as an older brother who was determined to see his family through painful challenges. The lessons serve him well in his work towards food sovereignty. My bestie, Pastor Kaji Dosha of Park Avenue Christian Church, played a key role in making this conversation happen. And I'd like to shout her out. Sis, you're a real one for the people. All right, it is our pleasure to welcome Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III to the DAP Project. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. We'd love to hop right into our tried and true question for the DAP Project and ask you, what is your earliest memory of exchanging DAP? There's two. One, I'm middle school, mm-hmm. going to a new school, and I went from uh, a school named for Harriet Tubman and moved and went to a school named for a slave owner named William Baker. And going from my all black Mm. school experience to a school that was more racially mixed and, um, you know, the the different dynamics present there. Uh, One of my earliest memories of the DAP was uh, uh, one of the black students who Mm maybe realized that I was in a different world out here in this new, now racially mixed school where I was used to being at a school where everybody moving in the building looked just like me. Right. And uh, yeah, he dapped me up and it was like, all right, my folk are here, I'm here, I'm gonna get settled. I've been welcomed into a circle and I still don't understand it all. And yeah, it was just two different worlds and uh, took some getting used to, but the dap helped me to make it through. So in our research to, to learn more about your work, uh, the photo on your landing page of the website, uh, you're sitting on a porch, you're wearing a sport coat, you have on a blue button-up shirt, uh, your Orioles baseball cap, uh, and behind you, I see large used open brown boxes and what looks like an abundance of cotton. Uh, fresh from the cotton field, still on the vine is what it looks like. Uh, cotton has a very particular place and symbolism in American history, particularly in Black history. What do you want folks to know and understand about you uh, when they see that photo on your landing page? Well, one, first, I'm sitting on that porch that I'm sitting on is a porch in a house owned by a dear brother of mine, Julius Tillery, who is, and this is his phrase, and we all honor it, he is uh, the puff daddy of cotton. Mm -hmm. And he's made some great moves and there's some other big stuff coming on the way with him but he's down there in Garysburg, North Carolina, fifth generation cotton farmer Mm. and young brother in his thirties and trying to make sure that rising generations of black folks see that it's important for us to remain close to the land and to remain close to, um, you know, the yield of the land as well. That is our heritage. And he helps to remind us cotton never enslaved us. The land mm. never enslaved us. Let's put it where mm. it is. White people enslaved our people. And so there's also that piece of kind of uh, addressing the trauma that is associated with farming and with agriculture in our community. The engineered trauma, manufactured trauma that we think about and experience. But yeah, in that picture, I'm just trying to say like, wait a minute, this too is our heritage. This is... Mm-hmm. You know, for many of us, though we might live in the north or, or cities out west now, we got roots down the country somewhere. And right. honoring that and lifting that up and celebrating that. And again, finally, getting closer to land that in the context of this country, 
being in ownership of land and stewardship of land, growing your own food, knowing where it comes from. I know we'll talk about that later, but all of that is very important. And I, as much as people now are talking about Black Wall Street, before we had a street, we had acres. And we need mm -hmm. to think about what having soil and acres and stewarding land, how that factors in what it means for us to be successful today. So that really segues well into the frame of our conversation about resilience. So we want to start with just some underlying thoughts about resilience before we then put resilience to the work that you're doing. I think of resilience, as I said, as having a couple parts, having a hope, a setback, and a recovery. Does that resonate with you when you think about resilience or demonstrating resilience? Yeah, I think that um, it, it does resonate. That's probably one of the more familiar ways that I was introduced to even the term and the concepts behind being resilient, that, you know, that toughness, that ability to, you know, like you said, bounce back uh, once you knocked off your square and, and get back on the path of whatever it is that you're hoping for and working for. Mm -hmm. But on this very hot day uh, in late June, it makes me think about here in Baltimore City where schools close in Baltimore when it gets too hot because mm -hmm. we don't have air conditioning in many of the schools here in the city. And then during the winter, they close because it's too cold because we don't have the heat, right? And so, and people talk about, oh, the young people are so resilient. They're so resilient. They're able to learn in the midst of the cold, in the midst of the heat. And, and it's like, you know what? Uh, what if instead of just celebrating they've been so tough to get through it, that we actually address the root causes of why they got to deal with this in the first place? Exactly. Like, yeah. They might just need that toughness for something else. Like this, this yeah. should be something we can manage. Like life is hard on its own. We shouldn't have to be uh, having to siphon off our toughness on stuff that's just injustice. That's, so that's not toughness, that's injustice you're asking me to respond to. And so that resonates with me too, that challenging of this notion of what it means to be resilient and why we must be resilient and the ways in which it can give a pass and even obscure the root causes of why that toughness is, um, is necessary in the first place. But in another way, I think about resilience as the ability to adapt with integrity. Um, and that really resonates with me in a stronger way in this, in this time. Like, mm -hmm. It, if I'm resilient, it means one, I'm paying attention to what's going on around me. I'm, I'm, I'm particular, I'm, I'm giving, giving attention, I'm observant of the details of my circumstances, of my life, I'm reflective, I'm uh, meditating on what's going on. Because in order to be resilient in this kind of way, you have to have some kind of baseline assessment of what's going on around me. And then as the situation changes, my ability to be nimble psychologically, emotionally, financially. I'm nimble and I can adapt to what's going on, but with a certain integrity to my internal constitution, who I am at my core. And so as life throws curveballs, as situations come up, as challenges knock on the door, I'm nimble enough to move without losing myself in the process. I'm still who I am at my core. And as the pages of life turn, you'll see that while I have to adapt to what's going on, uh, I'm not losing myself as I'm adapting. So I, I, I think in this period, that idea of an adaptive presence really resonates even stronger with me than toughness. Being able to adapt with integrity speaks to me today. So Pastor, in your work, you've taken on some really big challenges. You've had grand ambitions and you've put a lot of effort to do that. I would think that comes from having developed a muscle that allows you to adapt with integrity. So can you take us to a moment where you experienced a setback and maybe it was a learning experience that really taught you how to recover and how to continue in pursuit of your goals? Sure, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is growing up, I had uh, loved ones and members of the family who struggled with the disease of addiction. And growing up in that context with family members struggling with addiction, I was met with 
layers of disappointment in different ways as a child. And also as the firstborn of all of my siblings, also felt some kind of uh, a need and a sense to be protective of them, to look out for them, which is very common with you know older siblings in particular. And looking out and protecting them and managing my own deep hurt and disappointment in the midst of something that I did not fully understand and definitely didn't understand it as a disease, um, I think helped to um, work some of those muscles, emotional and mm -hmm. otherwise, that needed to be worked if I was to survive, if I was to um, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically survive the trauma of um, living with and living um, in circle and community with those struggling with the disease of addiction who were in their own ways responding to the trauma of living in this country. So it was like cascading traumas right. and um, recognizing that, yes, I was being hit by the cascading multi-generational traumas associated with this racist society, this sexist society, this capitalistic society. And at the same time, being determined that I was going to live anyway. I'm going to survive mm -hmm. this some kind of way, not without tears, not without hurt, not without bruises and bumps, but I'm going to make it through this some kind of way. And even as a child speaking aloud to my loved ones who were struggling with addiction saying, listen, I'm going to live my life and you're going to be here to see it. You're going to be here for my high school graduation. You're going to be here when I get married, you're going to be here. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, a youngster speaking that, but I was just, and definitely had just had, had to be the Lord because it's just God uh, just speaking and saying, you're going to survive this. I know it hurts like hell, but you're going to survive mm -hmm. this. And not only will you survive it, but those around you will survive it as well. And so I think my most I got a lot of workouts coming up um, to develop those resiliency uh, muscles and those adapt with integrity kinds of muscles, because. I very much so had an opportunity to lose myself in it and say, you know what, I'm going to give myself over and surrender to whatever it is that this thing is. I've already seen the ugliness of what addiction does. I want to see what the beauty of surviving all of this and giving myself in positive ways, what that does as well. So yeah. I would say that a lot of my muscles came from that period of my life. Your pursuit uh, for food sovereignty was born out of both hope and frustration. I hope that your congregation would eat healthy food and a frustration, uh, divine discontent, as you describe it, that the fresh food was expensive. So in 2011, uh, you planted a garden. How did that idea occur to you? How did that come about? I was frustrated. I was too proud to be begging white folk for what I thought was a human right. I ain't going to beg nobody for food. Like, what, is, what, what are we talking about? Food and water and seeds and air? From my spiritual standpoint, that's a part of the divine commonwealth for all of humanity. And so in a city that is laden with white-led philanthropic organizations that are throwing money around everywhere, I just didn't, I didn't want to beg white-led organizations or even white people uh, and, and or depend on their benevolence for something that I saw as a basic human right for myself and for my community. That kind of, oh no, I ain't doing that that energy led to, well, if you ain't gonna do that, what you gonna do? So it was like, all right, well, our church owns a little piece of land right here. So let's roll up our sleeves and start growing it ourselves. And no, we don't have acres upon acres, but on the little bit that we have, uh, let's do what we can do. And so that's how it started. And then organizing the existing assets of our church, the things that go largely unutilized or underutilized Monday through Saturday, the kitchen, multi-purpose room, classrooms. I mean, we don't think about, we don't often think about black churches as a part of the storehouse of the black community. Uh, black churches stand today as monuments to the, talking about integrity, the integrity and the service and the labor and the love of our ancestors. Even if today we're not, you know, if people today are not Christian, embrace other religious expression or spiritual identity, not religious at all, but spiritual, whatever, whatever those kinds of identities, how they show up for people, I think we still have to recognize that for many of us, our big mamas and them, they organized in black church spaces and poured their labor, their love, and their physical and material assets 
into building up these spaces and then said, we're going to also, because we can't get buried down there at the white owned cemetery, we're going to put our bones in this land next to the building so that many of us have to, when we go down south or go down the country, you have to go to the church to see where your big mama or your great, great, great has been buried right next to the church. It's sacred and holy land and ground. And I was just figuring that that great storehouse of the church could be utilized in furthering and securing a level of freedom, mm -hmm. of freedom for us. I mean, it's not just, I mean, you've, you've seen the stuff that, that we have online. Gardening for us is not like just a nice little cute hobby. Uh, we recognize that whoever controls the food controls the people. And if you can't feed yourself, you can't free yourself. And I think for those of us coming out of this, you know, well, still in, but hopefully seeing some light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic, um, last year, we saw the industrial food system in this country have a stroke. Uh, various lane, the food supply chains, warehouses, facilities. Think about how easy it was for the food system to have a stroke and then your local grocery stores, for the first time in many Americans' lives, they saw their shelves getting bare at their local stores. That is how fragile the industrial food system is. And so for us, it's like, listen, I don't ever wanna be in a position ever again in my life where I'm depending to that degree on a fragile, racist, capitalist, sexist food system to feed me and my family. Oh no, we're gonna to start to grow for ourselves. And thankfully, as you said, Aaron, we've been growing since 2011. And then with the Black Church Food Security Network is essentially we took the lessons that we learned at our one church and then mm -hmm. wanted to scale deep throughout the black church ecosystem and constellation of churches and say, our church has a kitchen, but most black churches have a kitchen. Mm -hmm. our, our church has land, but many black churches have land. Our church has these wonderful seniors who make sure that the programs get done and the money gets collected. And your church has that too. How then do we take these similarities and scale deep in our community uh, to have as many churches as, as we can get to grow food, buy from black farmers and use your church buses, your church kitchens and classrooms to really create the kind of system that we need. One where we don't have to beg anybody, but one where we are in the driver's seat. I was just recently in a Evergreen, well, I was in Nitchburg, Alabama, which is the rural suburb of uh, Evergreen, Alabama, which is a rural city in, in Southern Alabama. And I passed along the churches and the cemeteries right next to them. And with those roots, seen firsthand that farming is challenging. It's a, a challenging undertaking from weather and soil conditions, bugs, crops, prices. Uh, what are some of the setbacks that you've experienced with your work? It's not easy, which is why so many of our ancestors left the South or ran out of the South, but they also passed on um, this belief to so many of us, like, don't get into farming. Don't, farming is too hard. And so addressing some of that collectively is how, we, is, is how we solve it. I mean, I think when you have an individualistic mindset, it feels overwhelming. But we are, we are organizing Black churches out of necessity to work together because we already know to get that food from Evergreen to Baltimore, there's a whole lot of logistics that gotta get it from A to B. And no one church can figure all of that out by itself. But if your church got a driver and my church got a cold storage unit and your church got a van and my church has some soil experts to get the nutrients in the soil, putting it all together, we have what we need to at least make a dent in addressing the challenges that we that we face in a common way across the board. I mean, it's like it's like walking into a room full of black folk and asking, you know, uh, and saying, I wonder who in here has challenges with high blood pressure or cholesterol. It's like most people in the room will. And similarly, when it comes to food, I'm hearing from Evergreen to Baltimore to Detroit to Florida, we're saying the same thing. We don't have control over our food environment. 
the grocery stores has left, the corner stores don't have the food we need to help us to flourish physically. We're saying the same thing. And I travel the country hearing the same thing. I'm like, listen, all right, y'all, since we're having a very similar, very similar challenges, yeah, how do we leverage what we have in the spirit of asset-based community development to lead the way in building what we need for ourselves? And so I'm really energized and excited about doing this work because I feel like if we can figure out how to feed ourselves by working together, can you imagine how that snowball rolls into an avalanche? And now we're like, well, if we can feed ourselves, which is one of the principal, primary, most important needs, then maybe we also can educate our own children again, like we used to. Maybe we can also come together and create housing co-ops or worker-owned cooperatives. And so I'm really, so much of this, I probably won't be around to see, but I do pray that I can write another chapter in our shared and beautiful story around how black people work together to solve our own food related issues. And if we can do it with a susu, or we could do it in many other things. We can do it with food too, working together. As part of building that community, did you find that you had to do um, some, some work residing in folks' spirit to let go of a notion that they had to go to a grocery store to get food, but instead we can provide for, or they can provide for themselves? I'm imagining when I was growing up, we had a garden in the backyard and we would sometimes bring in tomatoes or cucumbers or kale or whatever my dad was growing, but I wanted food from the grocery store. I had like this dependency. No, you get food from the grocery store, not from the backyard. Bugs came out of that. So I had this distinction between the two. So I'm wondering if there was deep spiritual work that you engaged in with some of your partners so they could have the mind shift to say, no, we actually can be our own providers of our food. You can let go of what you've been raised on and embrace this new idea. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely is uh, work, Rhonda, that needs to be done in that way. And you know what? The, the work really is with younger people. It's with, it's with the children of those who migrated from the South. Those, your daddy and them, mm -hmm. mm -mm, they ain't gotta be convinced. Mm -hmm. and, and when it comes to, which is one of the reasons why we anchored this in the black church space is because the backbone of many black churches is African-Americans of a certain age, 55 and older, right? And going to, more specifically, black women, 55, 60 years of age and older. They remember growing their own food and there's this kind of nostalgic remembrance of their childhood that makes them smile because it brings back memories of their parents, brings back memories of the land and the farm and the like, and the things that they lacked and the things that they missed once they left the South. And so that deep spiritual work when it comes to addressing this issue is really with younger folk who, you know, we don't have that experience or we got it just a little bit, right? And so like, I remember picking peas with my grandmother in her garden uh, when she came North from Virginia. And, um, you know, so I got a little bit of that experience, but in terms of like every single day, no, I don't have that. And I do know what it's like to have the quote unquote convenience of going to the store, picking what you need. Like you said, ain't no bugs on it. It's already been washed clean. It's packed just right. It's appealing to the eye. And then you have this massive machine behind it that on TV, radio, movies, we are shown images of what's, what food is supposed to look like, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And so it's easy for us to just go to the store real quick um, and bypass the labor of growing it yourself out of quote unquote convenience. And I'm doing my air quotes here because that convenience has come with a great price that we are paying collectively. And there was something about the joy in the labor. Bell Hooks has this wonderful essay called Earthbound, where she writes about growing up in Kentucky with her, her relatives and 
their joyful relationship with the land. Um, you know, we today we might go on retreats to the I'm going camping, I'm going to retreat to the land. We come from people who didn't have to retreat from it because they lived on it. Well, they can identify plants by sight or, you know, so if you got a rash or a bump or a bruise, Big Mama knew how to go to the garden and, and get some plant, mash it up, put it on. And before you know it, you were like, who, how is it that we were convinced that that wasn't a type of skill and ability that we would need to have or want to have? Like, why are we like, we are applauding that kind of stuff more now because I do sense a shift happening. But man, we, we were taken for a loop once the machine of the white power structure convinced us that success means leaving the land and to be spiritual means this prosperity gospel of having shiny cars and tailor-made suits and thousands coming to your congregation. The whole time, our people were wealthy and we didn't even know it because they knew how to grow their own food, took care of each other didn't have to lock the door at night. If they needed something, go to the house next door. You thought you were related to everybody in the neighborhood, whether you were blood or not, that was your family like. And what I'm trying to do, Rhonda, is before that generation is gone from here, I'm trying to do everything I can to help to honor um, and valorize the integrity of their spiritual stories Put it almost like in the time capsule, because with climate chaos, with rap, with uh, continued injustices around the country and the world, we are going to need what Big Mama and your daddy and your granddaddy and them knew. We're going to need it in order to be resilient in a time that is very quickly approaching. When I first learned about your work and this connection from the Black farmers of the South, to the churches in, in Maryland. And I consider Maryland to be up South, given where it is. You're right. And DC is also up South because you know we're a little country. Just a little bit, Aaron. We know what country yeah. really is, so we're just a little <laughs> bit country. But as right. I think about your work, the vision that comes to mind is Jacob Lawrence's migration series. And I see a restoration of a broken and severed connection from the time when Blacks moved and migrated to points north for all of the reasons that we are aware, but it's this connection that you are restoring between these, um, like you were saying, these generations, these moments and this knowledge. So my question is, can you continue to elaborate on how folks are being spiritually fed through this exchange? Perhaps it's the farmers who feel like there's a restored connection to family that moved North or young people who are unaware of the history of being rooted in the South, but now there's this transfer through food. What I'm enjoying seeing with young people is a recognition that some of the things that they um, are identifying as like, it's in now, like it's, it's like the thing to do now, or it's like, you know, whether you're talking about crystals or waste beads or mercury in retrograde or whatever else, when we reconnect to the reality that we come from people, like none of this is new. Like we've always been a people who look to the stars. Like for our own freedom and salvation, we had to know how to read the stars or, or in our deeper histories, we have astrology today because of the wisdom of ancient Africans and the ways in which particularly in Kemet, they were able to map the skies. This is our stuff. You know, knowing like sage, like you would think for some younger people, it's like, oh, there's this new thing out called sage. And I'm like, <laughs> bless, your heart, bless your whole heart, baby. This is our stuff. And so I really appreciate and enjoy helping to reconnect younger people to stuff that's all, whether it was, it was in hoodoo or whether it was in the black church or whether it's in other spiritual practices as people of the land with an agrarian spirituality, we've always had these recognitions um, even if they were not you know, widely known or popularized. And so 
I do love the healing and reconnection that happens there because what I imagine is it's sending some younger people back to their grandparents or back to their elders. And I love that. I'm excited about that happening. I, and I'd love to see even more of it happening in terms of that reconnection and the honoring of it. I know people got beef with the black church uh, this way, that way, in every, every direction. And so much of the critiques are valid when it comes to the church, when it comes to preachers or preaching and the ways in which we've been bamboozled into furthering a, um, a Western white colonial Christianity and furthering legacies of enslavement, oppression, hurt, and harm. I think we have to acknowledge that. Mm. And as we parcel that out, I think we also can say that the black church has been a, a, a useful, in many ways, a useful container and envelope to preserve our spiritual identities, um, some of which don't even have an explicit Christian identity. Like, if you think about it, the black church being the only space where we were allowed in this uh, period of enslavement to gather, the church had to be the container for everything. Um, and so we codified some of our spirituality through song, which is why we have spirituals, or we codified it through some of our rites uh, and practices, but it's been in many respects, a useful container to preserve a part of our spiritual identity that was even pre-Christian. Mm -hmm. And so for younger people, I'm excited about their re reconnection with the land, their reconnection with the elders, and I'm doing everything I can to help to reconnect or, or promote healing with respect to their reconnection to the church. Not to say you gotta be a every Sunday, wear a big hat, all that, no, 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 no. I'm saying from a, from a socio-political and historical and even heritage standpoint, recognize this institution as a space that has preserved a whole lot of the stuff we need and still possesses the basic ingredients for what we'll need going forward. We need places to meet without being surveyed. We need land to grow food. We need, we need uh, the, the, the cooperative economics that comes with Sunday morning church offerings. Um, we need the spiritual healing that comes with being prayed on and prayed over in a P-R-A-Y-E-D kind of way. Laying on of hands and oil. Those, that's all, that's African spirituality. And from the elder side, I love the reconnection that comes with them because it's like, wow, somebody cares what I have to say. We throw our elders away. Like we read, we read civil rights history like everybody who was doing stuff back then is dead and gone. So many of our parents, grandparents, those who were on the front line, maybe they never written about in your Harper Collins uh, middle school or high school textbook, but we got folk who were there on the front lines of the movement who have stories. And I've seen the light come on for them when us younger folks slow down enough to listen. Mm -hmm. And you know how it goes, y'all know. You ask one question, you'll be there three hours, right? We have had that yes, experience. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's and it's and it's beautiful, right? Because it don't take a whole lot. They got it's it's like brimming, and they're just waiting for somebody to care enough to honor that history enough to say you have something that we need to hear. You got something we can't find on Google. We can't find it on Netflix. We can't ask our peers. You have something that we need and you have something that's worth honoring. And so I've seen the healing that comes when we log off and go sit around grandma and them table and, and just listen to them roll their stories over and over again. So you mentioned just in life, you go through these hopes and these bounce backs and you have to adapt with integrity and sometimes it can wear on on the spirit it can wear on the body so how do you maintain and, and sustain yourself what practices do you rely on to recover and to to stay to stay ready to adapt flexibly one of them is um community is a practice I, I, and i think i'm saying that because i hear a whole lot and you y'all have as well about self-care Mm -hmm. And in 
I honor and celebrate and embrace that idea of self-care and at the same time draw a line because I think when some people are talking about self-care, it's almost like detached and disconnected from community. And it, it, it coincides well with the very Western individualized, individualistic mentality of, let me cut everybody off. And when I cut everybody off, that's how I'll be made well. That ain't never been an African thing. That ain't never been an African thing. Uh, not to say don't go to, go, don't go to get a massage, don't get your feet rubbed. Don't, I ain't saying that. I'm saying there's a danger and always has been for black folk to equate an individualism with liberation, freedom, and rest. I can't find that nowhere in the story of, of our people. So I do challenge that idea. So for me, community is a part of what keeps me well, because it means, if uh, sometimes I like to imagine it, there are a number of hands right now on me helping to hold me up. My mama's hands, my granddaddy's hands, my grandmother's hands. So even when I don't have strength, I got hands that's helping to hold me together and hold me up. And sometimes I need their hands more than other days. Some days I feel like, all right, I'm good, I got it. Other mm -hmm. days I'm like, man, that was, a, that was a gut punch I can't come back from. But even on times when I've wanted to give up, I remember one instance in particular, my mother in love, I just got my car stolen. Uh, yeah, preachers get their stuff stolen too, y'all. I got somebody <laughs> stole my car and went on joy riding and messed my car up, right? And this is some years ago. And um, I remember my mother in love stepping in to make sure I got where I needed to be. I got in the car with her one day in particular, and I think God spoke through the radio because I was feeling down. I was mad I got robbed and took my stuff. And she knew I was down. She was trying to encourage me. But then this song came on the radio and I, I swear it was God singing through the radio at me. God was singing through a man's voice named William Devon. And through his song, he said, you may not drive a big old Cadillac, fancy white walls, TV antenna in the back. And then he said, <laughs> you may not have a car at all. But remember, <laughs> brothers and sisters, you can still stand tall <laughs> Just be thankful for what you got. I said, Lord, is that you? <laughs> yes, it was. That was the Lord speaking to me, right? I had no car at all, but that word was like be encouraged. But it was in the context of my mother in love wrapping her arm around me and then God wrapping his her and his and their divine arm around me on the other end to say, wait a minute, we got you, bro. So I think for me, that is a practice that I've seen time and time and time again. Community helps me to stay resilient. I also say, and I was sharing with one of the young adults um, at our church this week, that it's good for me to, to hold a rhythm around a few things. One, 6.30 a.m. prayer. And I pray 6.30 a.m. Uh, with members of my family and church. We pause. We take maybe 10, 15 minutes and pray Monday through Friday. That is a powerful way to set the tone for my day each and every day. After that, I might go to garden. So I'm growing food right here at my home as well. And so getting close to land and tending to my garden, going out to say good morning to my elderberry bushes and watering my plants and the like is also a part of my practice that gives me, that gives me great strength. Um, another part is, um, strangely enough, washing dishes. Something about washing dishes or cutting the grass clears my mind, gives me kind of a, a settled nature. Uh, and so that's a part of my regular practice too, but also singing. I'm a part of a singing family. And so we singing all the time around here. And whenever our family gets together, we do a whole concert most times. At some point, music is in the air. And then obviously, uh, collective and community worship on Sundays is a part of my practice. Just having, you know, at least pre-pandemic, uh, we've just started to ease back down into the building on a limited capacity, but pre-pandemic, like getting that sugar from the mothers on the second second row. Like that's good medicine. Sugar. Good uh, sugar. That that's good sugar, sugar. right? Mm -hmm. That's the good kind of sugar. Like yeah. glucose don't got nothing on the sugar from the sugar. mothers in the church. <laughs> yeah. Or like on my birthdays coming up, that special, speaking of that, 
that special dap handshake that got money in the middle of it. Okay, there we go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I love that, man. I just brought, you yeah. know, brought, brought my A's and B's from my report card to the church and all the deacons were dapping oh, up man. with their special money. I in forgot the, about that one. Oh, man. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, um, yeah, Sunday worship, being a, having a church family for mm. me is also part of my practice, but so much of that can also be seen, whether it's uh, our sisters and brothers in Yoruba faith practices who come together or hoodoo circles that come together or, you know, whatever it might be. But I'm saying there's something deep about that spirituality that helps to water our resiliency muscles to be adaptive with integrity as the waves of life come. Because in this world, you won't need somebody. I don't care how many degrees we have, how much money we have, how many followers. Life is not meant to be lived alone. And my community is a part of what helps to deepen my own resiliency muscles. So I wonder about how, um, how you help people to be transparent and to be able to say, I'm actually experiencing you know, a mental health challenge. Can we bring that to, to the church and be honest? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I'm so glad you raised that. It's something that I remember from the churches of my upbringing, we had testimony service. And testimony service was that time when people were sharing, like, I'm going through this, but God brought me through. Or I'm going through this, y'all, please pray for me. I remember the mourner's bench. I remember coming to the altar with that heaviness and having people pray over you. And, you know, all of that, I think, is a part of it. And I think while, um, while it may not be widely recognized, I think there was something to supporting there was something to the resources that that brought to our mental health that we've not fully honored. Like actually having, we talked about the, the big mamas with the sugar at church. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had one of those mamas pray over your life or pray you were yeah. going through something and they just saw it on your face and hugged you and prayed for you? Like those kind of moments? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Those, I, I'm thinking about one in particular. I was having a rough one and went to hug one of them. And I was, pa I'm pastoring at the time. This is not Little Heber growing up. I'm Pastor mm -hmm. Brown. And I was having a rough day. And this mother, I was at a rough day because one of the members of the church just passed. And I was there at the hospital. I just walked out the emergency room and her, her corpse is laying there. She just died. Members of the church show up and, I, and I'm trying to be Pastor Brown as they're shocked and I'm trying to be pastor one of the mothers messed around and hugged me. Mm. And when she, she did- that grief right out. Oh, I broke down on, I'm talking about snot and cry. I ain't talking about that nice polite. I'm talking about tears mm. and snot and, and hyperventilating on her shoulder. That helped me. Mm. And I'm grateful that I'm a part of a church family and a circle even beyond the church where Heber can show up. And I think Aaron, back to what you said earlier, what did I want that picture to show? I think that's a piece of it too. I was sitting on in blue jeans and a baseball cap and a button up to challenge the notion that I'm Reverend Dr. or Heber Brown III and I have it all together. That picture says I'm bumping what you think you know about pastors and I'm bumping what you think you know about religious leadership and churches. And I'm fighting to be my authentic. I'm a third generation black Baptist preacher baptized deep in the tradition of black church and I am comfortable in my skin and who God made me to be. And I don't have to be per perfect for you. I will say also, Rhonda, that recognizing the weight and toll of this pandemic in particular on people, um, our church and many other religious, you know, organizations, churches, mosques, synagogues have rightly so given more attention to mental health. And so we've had a series of mental health supports and services we got people in our congregation who are certified counselors and therapists and the like, and we paid them to do a multi-week mental health sessions to help us to think through how we show up better as a church in supporting people in their mental health concerns and challenges. And the more we talk about it, the more we have people saying, oh, well, since we're saying that, this is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm, and it was like, wait, you too? It's kind of like debt. It's like when you talk about school loans, and then you share yours, it's almost like giving a license, like, oh, <laughs> uh, actually. And it's like, wait a minute. 
we all going through this together, then it's almost like a, um, it's like a peace. It's like an affirmation. It's like a, well, dang, maybe I'm not as bad as I thought because I think one of the things that this society strives to do is though it gangs up on us and beats us down collectively, it, it tricks us into thinking that the way out is for us to individually fight our way through it. And I'm like, nah, wait a minute. Once I see that y'all got school loans, I got school loans, they got school loans, it's easier for us to find out that we have more support than we know when we are courageous enough to share what we're struggling with. Uh, what song is in heavy rotation for you when you are needing to be restored, when you're in your space of resilience? Is there something that you, a go-to song that's playing through your headphones or in your car speakers or, or in your office? So I will say that I believe that I grew up in the golden age of hip hop, the golden age. Hey, Aaron, you with me, Aaron? I'm absolutely with you. <laughs> <laughs> so you know so for me when i'm when i'm going through when it's heavy when i just need a mood shift and i want to take when i want to be proactive like i might know there's a heavy heavy situation coming up or or like i feel a mood coming on and i want to get in front of it i can always turn to hip-hop I, I could turn to, I want to rock right now. I'm Rob Bass and I came to get down. And it takes me into a zone, right? Um, and I, I don't know. Yeah, KRS-One. Um, whoop, whoop, that's the sound of the police. Like that. Like that can take me there. Old school salt and pepper. Uh, you know, any any hip hop from that era. De La Soul, yeah. like Big Daddy Kane. Like go down the line. Um, that that music really, I have a playlist, and a lot of that music shows up in my playlist. Even Wu Tang Clan, like you know, I can go to the like, what you know, whatever we can go there, right? And so all, all right, of that is helpful right. to me. And then I'm a pastor, so I also got to say gospel music also, <laughs> um, yeah. also speaks to my soul. Like like for instance, Shirley Caesar. Mm. Shirley Caesar got a song right now. Not. It's an old song, but it, it was popularized recently because a program brought it back. But when Shirley sees it singing about Satan, we're going to tear your kingdom down. Mm. Uh, I, yeah. can go, I can go in on some Shirley Caesar or, you know, any of those uh, gospel artists. But my favorite gospel artist is my younger brother, actually, Anthony Brown and Group Therapy. Speaking about humility, there's a certain humility that I've had to learn when I came to the realization that my favorite gospel artist out today is my little brother, my younger <laughs> brother, I have to say that, my younger mm -hmm. brother. So anything by Anthony Brown and group therapy also speaks, uh, speaks to me and, and helps me in tough moments, especially. Wait, is he your actual younger brother, are you saying? Or he's your brother, just like your close friend brother? Because their last names are both Brown and Anthony is from Baltimore. Yeah, that's my blood, younger brother. What? Blessings on <laughs> blessings is your brother? Oh yes, my yes. goodness. You thought yes. I was worth saving? Anthony Brown? Yes. yes. Whoa, yes. whoa, whoa, whoa. I know oh these two, Oh my goodness. <laughs> Pastor, right. this was a delight and a joy. Yes, <laughs> to yes, talk indeed. With you. I'm thinking yes, about indeed. How we started the conversation, you said, I'm going to survive as a child and as a, an adult. And you literally now have a whole ecosystem that, that helps people to, that provides what we fundamentally need to survive, both literally as food and then also with spiritual food. So it is just incredible to put those two pieces together, knowing that you may not have known then how you were going to survive, but now. That is so, you know, so obvious. That harvest is mm -hmm. uh, is so obvious and, and in front Absolutely. of us. So thank you so much. And we appreciate you pouring into it that project because you, you definitely poured a full cup, a full uh, oh. picture worth. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, thank y'all for this conversation. It's been amazing. It felt like talking to old friends. Thank you for listening to The DAP Project. Our conversations about resilience provide stories and tools to help you to keep moving towards your dreams, even as you encounter setbacks. Yes, and you got to get hip to Reverend Brown's work and his people because they're good people. You can learn more about him at HeberBrown.com and on Instagram at HeberBrown3. That is the number three. Pleasant Hope Baptist Church is gradually returning to in-person worship. Visit the online website at pleasanthope.org. Lastly, visit blackchurchfoodsecurity.net to learn more about linking the vast resources of historically African-American congregations in rural and urban communities to advance food and land sovereignty. Thank you for all of those good socials, Aaron Harvey. And before we go, you know what we got to do. We have to remind you of our book club, TDP Be Reading. In August, we are reading Chocolate City by G. Derek Musgrove and Christopher Ash. Yes, we spoke with Professor Musgrove in season three. Check out that episode on Apple Podcasts. We're excited to have him back. Remember, resistance is a highway with many lanes, and we hope you find yours. Take care, folks. Mm -hmm.